I listened to uh, some talk radio, and um, a gentleman by the name of Rich Zioli, who is a, uh, a Philly talk radio show host, and he's a, he's a Phillies fan. He made a bet with former Governor Chris Christie, who is a New York Mets fan. And uh, it was a simple bet, um, and it was two series ago when the Phillies were playing the Mets, and it was a simple bet that resulted in Rich Zioli, being the supporter of the losing Phillies, having to sing the song Meet the Mets on the radio because Governor Christie won, and that was the bet. So um, they had another bet on the most recent series, um, which started on Friday, and if you follow... Uh, the Phillies, they've already lost that series. They lost the first two games. The third game is tomorrow. So they made another bet. So I'm, I'm looking forward tomorrow to seeing what, what happens. But here's the funny thing. The bet for the series this weekend was the exact same. Governor Christie said Rich Zioli had to sing the Mets song again. Why? Well, because the first time, Zioli really didn't sing it. He really didn't sing it. He sort of grumbled his way through it. He kind of messed up the words on purpose, you know, like a disappointed Phillies fan would do it. And Governor Christie said, no, 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 that, that wasn't good enough. You really didn't sing the song. The words were wrong, and there was no gusto to, to the song. So Zioli gave his word that, that if the Phillies lost this time, that he would sing the song with, with much gusto, meet the Mets. So we'll see tomorrow whether that happens. I imagine um, that uh, Zioli has been practicing the song <laughs> in anticipation for tomorrow. And uh, he'll probably sing it with gusto to the, uh, the gleeful Governor Christie. Jesus um, talks about keeping your word. And not just keeping your word kind of halfway, you know, with very little gusto, looking for loopholes. He talks about keeping your word fully. And we're in the Sermon on the Mount right now. You want to go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27. If you have your Bibles or open up your app there, Matthew 5, 27. And Jesus is confronting a, a faith, a practice of religion that constantly looked for loopholes in the law. In fact, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus comes right out and calls them hypocrites. And I imagine the people that were listening to the Sermon on the Mount, in their hearts, they knew something was off. Something was off kilter in their faith because they looked at the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees and said, something's not jiving here. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, you tithe. You tithe even your spices, your mint, the dill, the cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jesus uses his word picture. Get, get the word picture, okay? They're straining out the tiniest little insect, a gnat, but they have no problem swallowing a camel. He says, you've got it all backwards. And the people knew something was off. When you tithe your mint, and that's more important than mercy. The people knew something was off, and Jesus was confronting this. Jesus is confronting this idea 
of keeping your word with full integrity and not looking for loopholes or a way out. And he speaks to us in Matthew chapter 5 about simple things and sacred things. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 27. In verse 27, he begins with, you know, a real easy subject. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment, by the way, of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He goes into the next topic. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And this whole idea of keeping our word in terms of marriage, he, he, now, he now expands it to everything when he says in verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. And he's not talking about bad language here. He's talking about making an oath and attaching a phrase to it, like, I, like you know, swear, I swear to God, across my heart and hope to die. That's what he's talking about. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Those of us with white hair would like to make it black. But we can't do that. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus is talking here about keeping our word. And his first subject here, he's talking about uh, a word that we don't use very much anymore, the word adultery. For a long time, that word hasn't been used. We come up with other phrases for it, as our culture has redefined a lot of, of words. So we need, really need to start with what, what was Jesus talking about when, he's, when he used the word adultery, when he goes to the commandment number seven. Well, simply in Jesus' vocabulary, adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse with someone who's not your spouse. That's what was meant in commandment number seven, and that's what Jesus meant when he used the term. And before we go on, let's talk about those commandments. God gave those commandments as, as a protection and as a picture, a picture of what kingdom living should be like but also as a protection, as a boundary line that protected us. Those commandments were there to protect us so that we could live the best life that God offers. And commandment number seven against adultery was a boundary line that protected marriage. Protected marriage against all kinds of terrible consequences that come about when there is adultery. To provide what is Best, God knows we need to be protected from all of those enemies out there that want to rob us of what is best. And that's the real purpose behind the do not commandments. It's not so God can, you know, can kill our fun. He's not a killjoy. He knows that we need boundaries so that we can experience his best. You know what's best for your kids, generally speaking, and that's why you set boundaries up to help them experience the best 
and protect them from those things that are harmful. That's what the commandments were about. But still, today, some ask, well, why is adultery or having an affair, why is it wrong? As long as no one gets hurt, why is it actually wrong? Besides breaking one of the commandments, why is it wrong? Well, God invented marriage. It's not merely a social contract which can be amended as as feelings and commitments change. God created marriage at the very beginning of the human race. Back there in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world, everything God created was perfect, including marriage. Back in Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There was no shame. Adultery is wrong because it severs that oneness, the permanence that God built into marriage. It's wrong because it's actually an attack on one of God's most beautiful creations, marriage. Now, I'm, in no way am I saying that marriage is easy and keeping that commitment is, is easy. Building out the oneness that God births in wedding vows, that's really hard work. I know that after 37 years. Marriage is, is it's pleasurable, it's satisfying, it's fun, it's comforting, but it's really, really hard work to maintain that oneness that God intends. Adultery is wrong not because it could possibly hurt people. Hurting people is a consequence, but that's not why it's wrong. Adultery is wrong because it damages the oneness that God intends in marriage. And so when a person commits adultery, they're, they're, they're really, they're breaking their word. They're breaking their word to their spouse. And that's pretty clear. But Jesus You notice in that first passage we read there in verse 27, he's not just talking about the act of adultery. He goes to the heart of the issue. He goes to where adultery begins, in the heart, and he calls it lust. Lust is an incredibly powerful human emotion. It's tremendously convincing in its power. It convinces individuals even to violate their most sacred commitments. And here again, Jesus is pointing his listeners who were taught that they were righteous if they followed the letter of the law. He's telling them, no, the spirit of the law is where it all starts. You see, a person in that day, like today, could say, I've never slept with anyone but my spouse. But Jesus would press and say, have you ever lusted? Have you ever envisioned and fantasized green pastures elsewhere? Well, then you've broken the spirit of the seventh commandment. You haven't kept your word in your heart. It's not just keeping your nose clean. It's keeping your heart clean. That's what Jesus is saying over and over again in these different topics. The marital unfaithfulness begins at the heart, at the heart level. And that's where Jesus is is, is really targeting his Sermon on the Mount, at the heart. Now, Jesus gives a solution if a person has a problem with lust. And it's pretty drastic. Gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Jesus says that's how important it is. Don't hesitate to do something drastic so as not to give room in your heart for something that is going to harm you. 
and harm your relationships. I have some friends who have installed a computer accountability app on, on their computer and all, all of their devices so that um, if they visit a site, well, all the sites that they visit goes to a list of their friends. And it's a means of accountability. So that if they go to a site to follow the power of lust, their friends will know. That's pretty drastic. You're letting your friends see everything that you see. Jesus says, don't be, don't hesitate to do something drastic to be accountable. Set boundaries, serious boundaries, because in Jesus' words, lust equals adultery in the same way that anger equaled murder. Remember that from a couple weeks ago. Lust equals adultery. So we can't say, ah, it's no big deal. Nobody got hurt. Jesus says you're breaking the seventh commandment in the same way that anger is like murder. That's the view from the heart, and that's God's view of these different issues. And notice that Jesus was addressing men primarily. Why is that? Because men lust more than women? Not necessarily. But I believe he's addressing husbands because husbands will be called to account for the health of their marriage. I read in Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And how does Christ lead the church? He leads the church in love. He leads the church in sacrifice. We'll read that later on in Ephesians chapter 5. So when I say, and I quote the Bible, that the husband is the head of the wife, it doesn't mean he rules with an iron fist, without compassion or without respect. That's not what it means. Because Ephesians 5, uh, 24 and 25 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how the husband leads. So husbands are the head of, of the wife, and I believe that means they're going to be called to account for the health of their marriage. So Jesus is hammering the husbands about the health of their marriage. Husbands, Jesus says, guard your heart carefully. Guard your eyes. And I would say focus on building the oneness that God intends in marriage. Put your efforts there. That was the gift that you promised on your wedding day. Don't settle for the letter of the law. If you need to come and get your papers, just come on up. I'm fine with that. It's no big deal. Don't settle for the letter of the law and just cover the basics of marriage. You know, I'm coming home at a decent hour. You know, I'm not putting too many hours in at work. I make sure the lawn's done. Cars are fixed. You know, don't just settle for the basics. Go for the spirit of the law and pour into your marriage the time and the commitment and the fun that God intended marriage to be. Create a marriage that is so full of the Lord that there's no room for lust. Jesus moves on to another uh, easy topic, divorce. <laughs> so in, in Jesus' day, divorce was as rampant as it is today. It was one of the questions that the Pharisees used to try to trip him up later on in his ministry and in his understanding of the law. Because in Matthew 19, we read, some Pharisees came to test Jesus and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? He replied, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, 
but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hardened. But it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, this was not God's intent. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's the same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount. This phrase, but it was not this way from the beginning. Divorce is not God's heart even in difficult marriages. It is, according to Jesus, the result of at least one person hardening his or her heart. There's no such thing then as a um, <clears throat> sinless divorce. Meaning, let me explain here, for, for a person or a couple to say, we're getting a divorce because we're simply incompatible. That's really a, that's really a, a lie. Because somewhere, Jesus says, somewhere in one or both of their hearts, there is a hardening. There is a hardening that needs to be worked on. There is a sin issue somewhere, whether it's unforgiveness or selfishness or bitterness or marital unfaithfulness. There's something to work on. And that's what needs to be dealt with. So, he, so here on the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing, he's, he's really stressing the sacredness of our wedding vows especially when he says here, it has been said, in other words, you've all heard <clears throat> from your Pharisees and the teachers of the law, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And what we need to understand there is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law took that sentence from Moses and they watered down the wedding vow to a simple agreement which could be undone by another simple agreement, a certificate. Let me tell you how bad it was. <clears throat> it was so bad that in Jesus' day, a husband could get a certificate of divorce if his wife's cooking was not to his liking. Because they would say, wait a minute, Moses said all I needed was a certificate. So I'm getting a certificate, and then he would send the woman away. Send his wife away. See, they were following the letter of the law, but certainly not the spirit of the law. They had devalued a covenant of marriage into a certificate, a piece of paper. Get a certificate and you can walk away from your marriage as simple as that. As long as we have a certificate, we're not breaking God's law. But Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's his point? When you treat the marriage covenant with contempt, and you have no valid reason for divorce, and you go and just get a certificate, and you say, ha, I got a certificate. No, you've broken God's law in your heart. His beautiful intent for marriage, you've broken that covenant. You can't just wave a certificate and make it all good. The husband that does that has disgraced his wife in the eyes of God and especially in Jesus' culture in the eyes of the people there in her town 
And just like with commandment number six, do not murder, and commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, you can follow the letter of the law, but be guilty of breaking the law in, our, in your heart, which in God's eyes is the same as breaking it with a specific act. And what I just described there, that, that weird, uh, ridiculous logic was the righteousness of the Pharisees. As long as I keep the letter of the law as narrowly interpreted as possible, I'm okay. I'm righteous before God. As long as I keep it on the outside, I'm good. You see why Jesus said in in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're just looking for loopholes. And do you see why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 called them whitewashed tombs? What a great picture. White on the outside, but dead on the inside? Now, as Jesus was speaking on this topic, I imagine there are women in that great crowd who suffered the shame of a simple wave of a certificate divorce. The public humiliation of being cast aside as their husbands go on waving that certificate. Well, what state is she left in? I believe that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 32. He's not talking about an act that she committed. He's talking about the state she is left in by the ridiculous logic of the Pharisees. She is, as the NIV translates, the victim in this case. You see, if God looks at this jerk of a husband and condemns that certificate of divorce, sees it as invalid, then in God's view, that guy is still married. And if he walks away, as he moves on to another woman, what does he cause his first wife to become? An adulteress. Not by an act of her own, but by the position that he took as a husband. Did she commit an act of adultery? No, her husband did. From God's view, because that certificate is worth nothing. It's not God's intent. We would call her a victim of a no-fault divorce, a victim of her husband's adultery. And that's why the NIV translate that phrase, he causes her to become a victim of adultery. And then shame follows from that. And that is cruel. And Jesus points out that following the law in that manner is actually breaking the law of God in our hearts. And it's terribly cruel to the woman. And I believe this is one of many, many instances where we see Jesus standing up for women in a culture that viewed them as property. This ridiculous logic that gives a man uh, that, where a man was given a certificate and then, the, and then his wife is labeled an adulteress? Jesus is standing up and saying, this is absolutely ludicrous. It's ludicrous logic from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because what's the truth of the matter if this was the case that Jesus was presenting? The truth of the matter is that woman was abandoned. She was abandoned by her husband who's waving that certificate because he didn't like her food. 
And according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, the one who is abandoned is not bound to the marriage covenant any longer and can remarry. So Jesus specifically allows divorce for infidelity, and then in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul allows divorce for abandonment. And very strong arguments can be made from Scripture that, that physical uh, and emotional abuse are also grounds, grounds for divorce as well. I mean, that's controversial among some Christians. God doesn't want abusive people in the church. He says over and over again, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm writing to you that, that you should not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. We're not to be partners with with Christians who even have a hint of sexual morality, impurity, or greed. Ephesians 5, verse 3 through 7 says, No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So some would extend infidelity, abandonment, even to abuse as grounds for divorce. But that's really a topic that we could talk about later. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is looking again directly at the men. He's looking at the men in the crowd and impressing on them the sacredness of their marriage covenant as difficult as marriage may be. It is sacred. That we must be a man of our word, especially if you're standing with your wife in the presence of God and making vows. You know, I a lot of times go back when I talk to people about difficult marriages and, and relationships. I go back to Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And it says there that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. So men... When there is difficulty in your marriage relationship, who is the sacrifice? Who is to be compassionate, respectful, understanding, and sac Christ gave himself up for the church. And that's the way we are to love our wives. So when I get my back up and I want to pound the table and say, I have a right, no. That's not the way Christ loved the church. Now that's a supernatural thing, isn't it? That's why I need Christ to work in me. Jesus is looking at the men in the crowd and saying, men, it's up to you. I know marriage is difficult and painful. I know that. My wife is not here today. I was going to have her come up and speak on that for probably a couple hours, but <laughs> she's in California right now in business. So, but in Christ's strength, it's not only manageable, it can be magnificent. And it's beautiful and it's enjoyable. Marriage can be a strong tower in times of trouble. That is God's intent. You know, Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, was asked, um, with Billy always on the road and being pressured to speak more and more, leaving her to raise the kids alone and kind of keep the, the home fires burning and functioning, she was asked if she ever considered divorce. And she said, no, I'd never considered divorce. Murder, yes. <laughs> but not divorce, and that is a direct quote. <laughs> Marriage is, it's a marathon, and it's a sacred journey that requires the strength of God's spirit, most definitely. And somehow it's a reflection of our relationship with Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, a mystery, he calls it. When we honor marriage, we, we honor God.
And so Jesus talks about two very difficult subjects, adultery and and then divorce. And he he talks about how the marriage covenant is so incredibly sacred. And he says, well, let's let's just talk about oaths in general. Let's just talk about keeping our word in the simple things. In verse 33, he says, uh, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. <clears throat> that was in the law. You make a vow to the Lord, you better follow through. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. See, what had happened was people had said this. I know if I make an oath in the Lord's name, I got to keep it. So I'm going to make an oath by heaven. See, it's not the same as the Lord. I'm going to make an oath by the earth. Or I'll make an oath, I swear by the great city Jerusalem. See, that's a loophole because it's not really making an oath to God. It's making an oath to something else. That sounds a little spiritual, a little spiritual mojo going on there. And Jesus goes, no, because heaven is God's throne. Earth is his footstool, and Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Don't be looking for loopholes in your oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no, because anything else is coming from the evil one. It just gives room for evil. There's no magic in making an oath by heaven or earth or Jerusalem, because it's all God's anyway. So stop looking for loopholes, Jesus is saying. It's like a radio talk show host trying to get out of a bet by not singing the song like he should. You see, one example after another, Jesus is tearing down this flimsy, phony righteousness that the religious leaders were teaching to the crowds, one full of of rules and loopholes. It's almost like It's almost like they were taught that walking with God is like the IRS. It's like the IRS is at the pearly gates. And there are mountains and mountains of pages of rules that you have to follow. But guess what? There's a lot of loopholes, too. And if you work the system right, you'll get it right. That's what it means to walk with God. And Jesus is blowing that whole system up. The legalism and the loopholes were crumbling as Jesus spoke this great Sermon on the Mount, exposing this, this corrosion and corruption, and it, like, like taking the, the green corruption off of a beautiful copper statue. That's what Jesus is doing as he reveals what it means to walk with God and the beauty of God's original intent for the kingdom. It's not 613 rules and finding loopholes to all of those. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of integrity. Let your word on your wedding day stand. Do the hard work of building oneness in your marriage. Guard your eyes, guard your actions. To enter the kingdom, your righteousness must surpass this phony righteousness uh, that you've been taught. This IRS righteousness that you've been taught to get it right with God. No, it's simple. Let me just read a few scriptures about this righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. 
You are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we need to have a righteousness that surpasses the IRS kind of righteousness that the religious leaders were teaching. But we become the righteousness of God in Christ. And in Ephesians 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created, that's past tense, already created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, we have access to the righteousness that is required, that righteousness that fully surpasses the IRS Pharisee righteousness and legalism that's out there. So let me close with a challenge and, and a comfort. First of all, a challenge. This doesn't apply to everyone. But men, if you are in some way mistreating your wife, God sees you. And you may be able to say, I've never slept with anyone, anyone else. I've never laid a hand on her or whatever lame loophole you may want to invent. But if you're not respecting, if you're not loving, if you're not sacrificing for your wife, God sees you. He sees how you treat your wife. And he sees your heart. My challenge to you is to get right with God. Confess that sin of indifference or even that sin of laziness. I mean, I've tried. She's a mess. I've done my best. Confess that sin. And if lust is there, you need to confess that too. And you need to get some help and some accountability. Know that God forgives and God empowers. So he wipes the slate clean through the cross, but he empowers through the resurrection. Renew your vow with God and with your wife, and then take whatever steps you need to rebuild the oneness that he desires for both of you. Ladies, if you've been mistreated or if you've been ignored, God sees you too. He sees you. He saw Hagar in the, in the Old Testament when she was cast aside. Jesus saw the woman at the well, saw her pain and shame and reversed it. And even one of his closest disciples, Mary of Magdala, he restored her from a life of abuse and torment. God sees you. And he has comfort and honor to bestow on you. And he has power for you to stand up and to overcome. His glory, his glory can become your honor. He'll shine his face on you and, and, and you'll be able to reflect him even to those who mistreat you. See, it's, it's not as difficult as the IRS at the pearly gates, like the Pharisees or legalism would have you believe. It's actually as simple as saying yes to Jesus. Yes to Jesus, and, and, and he'll take care of the rest. 
It's as simple as saying, let my yes be a simple yes to you, Lord. I'll follow wherever you lead. As difficult as that may be, I'm saying yes to you every day. And he'll take care of the rest. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you and we honor you. We thank you and praise you. First of all, for the, the beautiful cross. It is beautiful to us because of the forgiveness that it brings. And for those who have struggled, Lord, in, in some of the areas that we've, we've talked about, those of you who have been, those, of, those who are here who have been victims of, of divorce, and maybe it was no fault divorce, maybe there were uh, large issues, Lord, I pray you would just enter into, into their lives, into their, their past, and you would redeem them, that, that you would redeem them through the cross, the pain and frustration and the remaining questions and difficulties. God, redeem them, I pray. We thank you for the cross because of the forgiveness it brings. We also, Lord, we, we thank you for and praise you for and are amazed at the resurrection. Jesus, when you called life back into your body and then rose again, saw your disciples, taught them, Lord, and then, and then you ascended, Lord, all of that. And then, and then when you gave us your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Father, your Spirit gives us the power of the resurrection. This world wants to convince us otherwise. This world and our, our struggles want to convince us that things can't change. But if the resurrection is real, Jesus, if your resurrection is real, things can change, and they can change radically. So, so God, give us, give us the picture of the resurrection. Give us the power of the resurrection. And God, lead us in your presence because we want to say a simple yes. We want to follow you. We ask that you would do the rest and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.